Welcome to this Five Clubs Conversation. I'm Johnson Wagner, your host, joined by my co-host, Brendan DeYoung, 2013 International President's Cup team member, good friend of mine, college teammate, college roommate. We're joined today by the great Andy Roddick, 2003 U.S. Open champion, tennis hall of famer. We're going to talk a little bit of Masters recap, a little bit of tennis, maybe see how Andy feels about the Live Golf Tour. All this coming up next on Five Clubs. Today's Five Clubs podcast is brought to you by Golf Pride. Golf Pride knows that a grip isn't only a grip. It's the one piece of equipment in your hands on every single shot. You might not know it, but it has a huge impact on your game. In fact, Golf Pride recently conducted a first-of-its-kind study showing the impact of worn versus new grips. It showed that on average, a focus group of adept golfers gained an extra two yards of carry when they played with new grips. So what are you waiting for? Refresh your grips. Refresh your game. Visit GolfPride.com today to learn more. Golf Pride. Respect the grip. And with that, Brendan, Andy, welcome. Andy, thanks for being here. Cheers. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's get into the Masters a little bit. I, I've watched a ton. I know Brendan's not a fan of golf, so he didn't watch a whole lot. But uh, <laughs> like, what were your takeaways? I'm the biggest fan. I mean, it's my kind of number one sporting event of the year. Um, I, listen, I, I know one thing from, from my former life. If the conditions look that bad on TV, they are horrendous. And when you can like see real raindrops coming and pu- I mean, I, it's, it reminded me a little bit of Wimbledon where they used to have that like spritz where you'd be on and off all day and the, the stress mechanisms in place. I had a lot of sympathy for what they were going through on Saturday, but Sunday came good, didn't it? It sure did. Rom was a great champion. I was actually down there Saturday with a college buddy, another teammate of ours at Virginia Tech, and uh, my hands were frozen, standing under an umbrella all day. I was pretty happy I wasn't playing golf. Yeah. We're watching all these guys finish their second round on the 18th hole. Nobody could even sniff the bunkers down the left side. It was absolutely brutal, but like Brooks Kepka made a run. You got any thoughts or feelings on those live guys? It was, it was interesting. The whole time I'm going, I mean, obviously, uh, Rom kind of took over, was around 6-7 hole. I think he... Uh, kind of got his nose in front a little bit, but I'm going, oh my gosh, is this going to be a playoff with, you know, with Rom and Liz? Is this going to be a, like, live versus PGA playoff at golf's greatest stage, and are people going to meet behind the green and do the whole thing? Uh, I didn't, I, I felt like I wanted to avoid that that sort of drama. Um, but, like, credit to the, credit to the, like, listen, the live guys have been taking a lot of heat, and they came and they played. I mean, Reed, what did Reed finish? Sixth, and Mickelson was right there, and, you know, these guys weren't getting taken in our master's drafts, and they can still play, you know? I mean, absolutely. I, I think a lot of guys were surprised. You know, we see yeah. these guys going out there in shorts and look like they're just playing with their buddies, mm-hmm. and then, hey, you know what? When, when push came to shove, these guys showed up. They, and they pushed those guys all the way down. down they were, the I mean, Mickelson posting eight under par, Rom's making bogey on nine, sitting at ten under par, and they're basically crossing paths there off those two greens. I, I found it absolutely amazing. I was certainly happy that it was uh, mm-hmm. Rom winning and kind of made it not a very interesting back nine. Mm-hmm. I always love Augusta finishing, you know, a little tighter than that, but I thought it was incredible. And it kind of brings me to my next point. I know the, the Saudi kind of sports commission has a tournament over in Saudi Arabia now. I'm not sure the name of it, but getting a lot of big names. Do you have any thoughts? Like, was that something that was going on at all when you were playing tennis? 
Not really. I think everything's a little bit more heightened. I, 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 I think I would be lying to you if I said I was as aware of like geopolitical issues in 07, 08, 09 and kind of the source of money, um, how that affected everything. So I, I, maybe, and maybe I was just ignorant. Um, I, I think everyone's a little bit wiser. I, I think we've all kind of had a forced education into the history of this type of thing because of live and because of you know, maybe maybe some crooked FIFA deals and maybe some some other things. So I think we're probably a little bit more aware in 23 than we might have been 15 years ago. That's fair. And we've had discussions about what when we were in the height of our career back in the early 2010s, like what would we have done? It's nice that I wasn't forced with that decision being washed up by the time Liv came around. But mm -hmm. I mean, you know, what do you think? I mean, I'll be honest. I put my name forward. And it was a long shot, but I put my name forward when it came when it came about. Um, you know. I don't think that anybody should judge either way. I really don't. I feel like people are at different points financially in their career or whatever. I don't feel like anybody should be judged for the decisions they've made. I mean, what would you have done back in the day if, if this tournament in Saudi was going on? Do you think you would have gone and played for the cash? I don't, I don't think so. It's, I mean, I think it's playing one tournament is a different decision than, than you know, 200 guaranteed when you're not really concerned about getting the ball in the hole as, as much as you used to be. Um, also, I would, have, I, would not have, um, I would not have given up the chance at playing in, in majors because that's, that's what I wanted to do. Um, I, I probably a little bit more perspective. My whole thing and the thing that I think largely gets ignored is, you know, the, the PGA Tour, it's an opportunity for a long time. I mean, you're going to hit 50 and have another opportunity. Right, you're gonna have another look at the basket. Now, a decision you make at 23, is that gonna affect your life until you're 50? So I, I hope it's not a short-sighted decision that you know, a prospect makes, like a Taylor Gooch goes and, and makes at 23 that affects him when he's 50 is a great four-year run, but the cumulative effect of money and the, the opportunity to have that for 25 years, I think is largely underreported. Not to mention, if this doesn't work out, the Saudis are gonna go kick rocks you can't go to Saudi and sue them and get that money. It's gone. It's like a fart in the wind. Like you're not going to see it again. So I get the, I, I, I bet four or five guys got a lot of upfront money and I bet, you know, a, a lot of the other guys that weren't the first ones through the door, I, I think they took a little bit more risk than maybe they're aware of. Well, and a guy like Harold Varner, who we both play a lot of yeah. golf with back here in Charlotte, like he loves playing golf. And so if it's done in two years, what's he going to do? <laughs> what's he going to do from 35 to the rest of his life, it's 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 a it's a big window, but uh, yeah, I, I, I find it I find it. And, and Brendan's perspective, being from Zimbabwe, I think you see a lot of the foreign players not having quite the belief that American players do of, of having gone over. I mean, yeah, yeah, no, I do agree with that. And, and I think if you look at the guys that that went over there, there are a lot of foreign guys that did that. And obviously, maybe we it's not that we're not as loyal to the PJ Tour because it gave us a great opportunity, but. Maybe just a little bit easier to make that move, I would say. And, and so, Andy, on on the PGA Tour aspect of it, you follow the PGA Tour, mm -hmm. I'm assuming. How do you, how have you enjoyed the designated event structure this year? And I mean, do you think it's bringing stuff back to the game? And second part question: Did you enjoy watching the Masters with those guys back in it? Did it give you more interest level? Yeah, it was great because it's like having like even back in the days of like WWE. I used to watch it with my grandmother right before she took her teeth out for the night. Um, we would sit there and watch it and you had like NWO, right? You had like this villain yeah. and like they're coming into town and you know, 
Patrick Reed's dumbass is wearing the, 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 the four aces gear, like, and just really kind of making a celebration out of it. But that's kind of what you want. You know, sports, it, it, it works on rivalries, it works on differences. People that act the same, we don't remember those rivalries. We remember differences in styles and in opinions and in, 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 in the way people act. I thought it added, you know, it added a little bit more, especially because we, we missed two full days of, of network broadcast, right? Like we didn't see yeah. that. Um, you know, so I, I, for an entertainment, for entertainment value, I liked it. I feared. I did not want the result to be a live guy. I did not. I did not want to see the circus behind the green at Augusta National. I did not want to see that. I was definitely cheering for uh, a PGA person winning. Um, but listen, it was it was a talking point. It was another thing to see. You know, something to cheer against. You know, what, what they said: the average uh, the person who says they hate Howard Stern listens for like an hour and a half a day, and the the average fan listens for like forty minutes a day. Uh, that's how I feel There's about a certain. That's how I feel about a few podcasts. I've yeah, for sure. Uh, let's get away from live for a minute, Brendan. Like, lead us off with some tennis stuff, if you don't mind. Let's get into a little bit of tennis. <laughs> Brendan fancies himself as a bit of an amateur <laughs> tennis player now in his retirement. Both, so. We both do now. <laughs> well, there's amateur and amateur. <laughs> all right, back to the start. Yeah, Saddlebrook Academy. Was yeah, where it all started for you. What did a day look like at Saddlebrook Academy? It's a bit of a factory. Um, you know, and by the time you arrive to Saddlebrook, you've probably, you know, been good in your city, good in your state. You're pl probably playing up a couple of divisions. Um, you know, we always used to say, I think this goes for any sport, if you think, if you're a kid from Charlotte or Zimbabwe, you know, if you think you're really good at a sport, you just got to travel a little further and see what the rest of the world has to offer. So. Saddlebrook was insane. I mean, you'd, you'd go to school at seven in the morning, you would get out. Um, we, we pretended that we were there for education for about four hours. Um, then we would just play tennis six or seven hours a day, do fitness, and, but you also were exposed to like the best kids from different countries. And, and so it, it, it brought out this like insecurity at a young age. It's like, I thought I was good and then this kid's way better. But also it's like, you didn't take many days off of the grind because you saw that kid who was, who was a little bit better. Ultimately, I left Saddlebrook after about a year and a half because it was, it, was, it was very, uh, it, it, I think the burnout rate was pretty high. Yeah. Um, but it did kind of set the precedent for a certain type of work ethic. You can leave that place, but after being exposed to something, you know, you're told something and you forget it. You see something and you remember it. Um, so I, I, I saw it. I remembered it, and it was. I, I certainly knew that I was probably at a talent deficit, based on Earth. How, what year? How old were you when you were there? Um, I think I think I went there when I was 12 and left when I was 14. Um, but then when we were 14, we kind of basically all the kids that got thrown out of uh, USTA funding, right? So they. Basically, you turn 15 or 16 and they say, okay, well, we're going to take these kids and they're going to make it and these kids aren't. So we basically took the, it was like the first tier that weren't going to make it. And we used to play at our, our uh, we had a South African coach named Stanford Boster and we would play to his apartment complex. And we, you know, turned out a couple of top 10 guys and we kind of had a, a little bit of an edge about being the cast-offs who became the not cast-offs. So if a parent came up to you now and said, little Johnson, or little Sally, whatever, it's showing real promise. Little Johnson, when you say that, it's yeah, funny. Yeah, yeah, if his yeah. name, and if his name was like Tom. <laughs> no, he's little Johnson. Yeah. yeah. Would, would you say, yes, I think this is, this is the way forward, this is the way to go, or 
That burnout rate's pretty high. Uh, it's, gosh, it's so kid-dependent. Um, yeah. I think, I think we would be well-served in tennis development in the U.S. because it is so big, right? We've tried to model it where we create one epicenter like they do in France. Like everyone in France can drive there in three hours. Yep. So having a 14-year-old there, he can still get home, right? There's a yep. different issue. I think if someone's in a great position with a comfortable coach, I don't know why we would take them out of a good situation. You know, I always say it used to be where you felt like you were playing for a logo of, of a tennis federation as opposed to uh, your country or your flag, right? right. We're trying, the goal is, let's, no, one, no one knew that I was one of the cast-offs when I was playing Davis Cup at 18. No one cared. They, yeah. they cared that I could add value and win matches. Um, I, I think there needs to be, of a player development budget, if someone's in a great situation, let's fund that situation better. Right. right. Let's create more opportunities to travel. Let's uh, expose people to best practices for you know physical training. Uh, when they come to a center, let their coach come, <laughs> so they're in on the conversation. So you're not changing something or someone at 13 or 14 years old. And then for every one of those kids, there's a kid who doesn't have the correct coaching, who has just been a phenom as far as talent. Let's get them some coaching. Let's get them some competition. So I, I do think there does there needs to be a little bit more of a metric of like letting a good situation be better. Do you believe that's where kind of the downfall of tennis has been in American tennis for the or I, just lack of talent or? Well, well it, the, <laughs> lack the, of talent, the, come on. The down, well, I, I would say, are we getting, are we, are we doing a good job of creating a friendly handshake into the sport with athletes that are talented, not just people who are interested right. in, in tennis? Um, I, the downfall is interesting because I, I think we're just basing it against a long shadow. You know, right currently, as we stand, we have 11 uh, American men in the top 50 in the world. Right. That almost doubles every other country. So are we basing it against you know, the, the shadows that I played in, uh, you know, the Agassiz McEnroe's, and you know, at that point in time, we didn't have to worry about you know, Serbia. We didn't have to worry about a lot. Of, so tennis, if we leave kind of the the echo chamber of United States tennis, it's the second most popular sport in a lot of major markets around the globe, right, behind soccer. Um, and so as that interest level has grown around the world, it's kind of had a little bit of a backslide as far as American interest. If you look at the top 10 endorsers from 1984, five of them were tennis players. Right. Now none of them would be, right? So it, I, I think it's just maintaining interest and in having something I don't think we've played the marketing game very well, frankly. Well, and that's one thing in golf that has been so specific. We're, we, I mean, I consider myself an athlete a little bit, but you look at this young. Do you? <laughs> do, do, do you? <laughs> not, not, really, not, really, not really. I can't run a mile, I can yeah. say that. Uh. But if you look at the, the athlete that's getting into the game now, guys like Brooks Kepka yeah. and Rom, and even going like Gordon Sargent, like we are getting such incredible athletes that I think Tiger Woods brought to the game mm -hmm. that otherwise didn't. And you've got, you're competing against football, base, baseball, basketball, and golf is so far down the list, and you're saying tennis is down that list as far as athletes wanting to, to get involved in the U.S., is that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if, you're, if, if your choice as a parent is, okay, I'm gonna, you know, I have a very talented nine-year-old athlete, which, take that for whatever it is, right? Am I going to participate in sports that have like a very strong infrastructure post-school, uh, I can have major competitions within a, you know, you draw a circle around your city and you can drive three hours. 
um, or am I going to get into a sport there that requires, once you're at a certain level, being seven in the country and 14 in unders, all that means is that you're gonna have to spend a lot more money traveling, right? So Globally. Just, yeah, and there's, there's, there's no, it's not as if there's a guaranteed contract. Um, I know that's that way in golf, but there is, there, you know, the, the, the prize money's better in golf. Um, you know, so it's, it's you're, you're, you're taking on a very challenging existence that basically has 80 jobs worldwide that you're gonna make real money doing. Um, and it's not, you know, I, I hear, I always use the stat one year at the Open, I got so pissed because, and I think golf does a better job at this, they're still guilty of it in one way, but defining people as, as a journeyman. So I was playing someone who was ranked like 30 in the world or 40 in the world second round, and this journalist kept referring to the, like a journeyman. And I said, do you know how many Major League All-Stars there were this year? And how do you, how would you define them? Like, oh, the, well, the best in the game. I go, there were 55, including injuries. But yet, you're, and that's from a place that's largely played in like seven or eight countries. And a lot of those seven or eight are tiny little countries. I go, this is a global sport. This guy's 30 in the world. And you're kind of dismissing him out of hand. You know, there's 30 guys on it. There's 70 guys on an NFL team. One team. I go, so, but, but that's what I'm talking about with tennis. Like, we have to market it differently. Like, we have to know the names of the players that are, you know, you walk into, you, you know, the, the clubhouse of Quails, like, geez, Johnson's won a bunch on tour. That's awesome. Guy total, wasn't, total yeah, journeyman, yeah, is it from, no, from that perspective? No, but, but, like, it's just different, and we don't tell, a, we don't tell the, the story well enough in tennis. Yeah, the individual sport compared to the team sport. I mean, that's my big problem with the designated event structure going forward for mm -hmm. next year is that <laughs> there's only 175 guys a year that are members of the PGA Tour. Mm -hmm. And your point to football, there's 70 guys a team. There's something like 2,500 players every year in the NFL. And so the PGA Tour is healthy. We're booming. I have a, I have a hard time believing that this is the right time to shrink down. And nobody outside the top 50 gets any press or any love. It's all about those top 10, 15 guys. You can have a really good year on tour, finish 55th on the money list. You've played good all year, and all of a sudden you get booted out of these big events. I think that's is there that's is there wrong. any value for if we're talking purely from a marketing perspective? Is there any value in someone 70 in the world not having those big names on the off weeks to where they're actually getting the shine on TV and they're actually monopolizing a leaderboard, you know, more often? And that's the other side of the argument is that it's going to be a wait and see game to see if that actually yeah. plays out like it should next year. That's definitely the tours argument is mm -hmm. that those non-designated events are going to be better served having all those guys in that 70 range. But yeah, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about. I'm not sure about it right now. I'm. I'm I, I think it's going to be fluid. I really, I think it's going to be very fluid. This is going to be a number of years until they iron out everything that's wrong, and you know, until we have a, a concrete model that they're going to stick to. I think it, it's going to continue it, to I change. I mean, Tiger spoke on Tuesday in his press conference at Augusta about how he's lobbying the tour to have cuts in his events, yeah. which I love. I know Nicholas is as well. Palmer would be very upset to hear that Bay Hill wouldn't have a cut. So I think there'll be. It is fluid. I like that. Well, it's, point. it's such a a big part of professional golf is grinding it out on a Friday afternoon to play the weekend. It's a huge, <laughs> mm -hmm. you play differently, like you, you think differently right. and it, it's a part of professional golf and all of a sudden that just gets thrown out. Right, you're playing the US Open tennis back in 2005 and Andy's guaranteed to make it to the final day, like that just doesn't make sense. Right. I, I, you, and I, I will tell you with the, just the cuts made conversation, it, it, like golf has a million reference points. like. I don't, we don't keep track of how many times you made the second round. Like golf has so many great talking points and so many different ways to tell a story during a broadcast. Tiger, so 23 straight cuts in the mat and like it makes it like, is he gonna make it? I'm like, what does that matter? 
in the grand scheme of time, it's, it's a great talking point. But like golf does a better job of telling stories in broadcast than, than tennis does to where we want to pay attention because we want to know this exemption into Augusta. So, you know, being top 20, top 15, I'm not sure what it, where it actually lies, but they have the ability to tell better stories on a personal level and having cuts is kind of one of those. Right, right to that point, like Sam Bennett, it's top 12 gets invited back to Augusta. The amateur Sam Bennett coming down the stretch and he didn't end up making it in yeah. there. I think he was one shot off, but that is you're you're paying attention to this guy totally. finishing because there are that many stories. And from a gambling aspect, golf, we have great statistics and we have a, you know, on a normal event, we've got 156 balls in the air at a, at a tennis tournament at one time. Maybe you're watching three matches, four matches at a time on a on an early round coverage, but it, golf has golf has so many advantages, mm -hmm. and, and I, I like to hear you say that the tour is doing a good job of telling those stories because, from my perspective, I feel like they could go a lot deeper. But they are trying; they are making an effort to go deeper into it. Yeah, I, I, listen, because they have the opportunity to tell them, are they telling them fully? I don't know. I mean, you you would want a deeper dive. I, I, I like I watched this, uh, and golf had one too. What's the the the, the, the thing on Netflix? Full swing. Full swing. Yeah. So I. I did some work on the tennis one, just kind of commentary, but I wanted a deeper dive. I found it a little average, like it was kind of very topical, but then I talked to people who have kind of a starting interest in tennis and they loved it. So I'm going, okay, great, there was a value add, it's not for me. So maybe it's just that I'm a golf fan and you actually know kind, right. of, kind of how the sausage is made. Did you watch Drive to Survive? I haven't watched oh, it yet. Oh man, it was so good and I knew nothing. Oh sorry, sorry, the F1 one. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. And yes. so I thought their first season was similar. Phenomenal. It was yeah, kind of yeah. like a, just a, here's your introduction. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure a lot of the hardcore F1 fans hated it. I yeah. personally and thought. And then it got deep. And it did. Yeah. And I thought, yeah. I, I'm so happy that Full Swing is coming back for a second season because I think it will it will drive them. But to the average golf fan, we were talking about yeah. you on Breakpoint on the way over. Like it was, I know your commentary was much deeper than what they showed, right? Like were you a little bit upset? That <laughs> they, they just, they just were wanted me to say Kyrgios was lazy or something. I mean, that, that was kind of it. Right. That was my sole purpose. <laughs> <laughs> and he is. Very. Yeah. Self-admitted, by the way. Yeah. So it's not, and then I was like, you bashed him. I'm like, I, I mean, I'll cut and paste what he says. Right. Like, I'm, <laughs> just, I'm just, if anything, I'm just repeating. Right. You got any more tennis? Yeah, I got tons of tennis. We're, 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 we are a golf podcast. I, mean, I do fancy myself. Well, sometimes. I, I want to talk about Sweetens Cove a little bit. Yeah. Are you cool with that? Great. And how did you get involved with the new ownership structure, the new ownership group with Peyton Manning, Drew Holcomb, yeah. our friend Jonathan Ishii. Yeah, that was, that was a nice shout out for Ishii right there. Um, he's gonna eat that up. Um, it's a good name check in the same breath as Peyton Manning. Um, <laughs> well, he puts himself at that level. I know, I know, I, I know what he thinks. It was just, um, he's gonna like that. Uh, no, so I have a, 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 another business partner who has a background in, in, in development, um, hotels, real estate. And he had read this, the article uh, about Sweetens Cove in the New York Times that was the, the little course that could was the name of it. And gave the full story of Rob Collins and how you know, he was out there, he would rent equipment during the day, go build this golf course and then return it at night. And then he did everything with maintenance. He was kind of like the MacGyver of this course and took this course on a, in a it's in a floodplain and made it into kind of this first golf course that I think social mediums built. Right, like they, they photographed it the right way. There was great marketing around it. You know, they would let someone come and, and still do. You can pitch a tent on the first hole. Sun comes up. Person's not even in the shed yet, and you can just fire one off. Um, now, when you come back around, you might have to pay the bill. So, uh, but my my partner was obsessed with this, the idea of this golf course, and I said, I, oh gosh, I, I don't. I, do we want to be in the nine-hole golf business? Is that what we're doing? That doesn't sound like it has a ton of scale. 
Um, you weren't an easy sell. No, no, I, I was. I just I, I normally am the guy who has four questions once he's heard one thing. So super annoying. Um, but then there was an opportunity. We were at a, uh, a a whiskey bar and we're looking at. You know, there's there's seven pages of real estate with Kentucky whiskey bourbons, and there were like three options from Tennessee. It's like okay, there's a Tennessee golf course. There's you know, maybe there's an opportunity here. Uh, we talked to Peyton, and uh, he was interested. So I'm like, okay, we got Tennessee Jesus on board now. Um, <laughs> we found a blend, uh, master blender, Mary Ye- Eves, who's like a genius. We just stay out of her way with, with, with the product she makes. And so can we tell a story using this golf course? It is an underdog story. We're going to you know, try to push this brand. A lot of it just made sense. We had a lot of... Uh, we had a lot of yeses when we didn't deserve them. I don't think we had a proper business plan. We made up some valuation to raise money, and people, you know, I, I think they were just paying a friendship tax at that point. Um, but it's it's worked. Started in two states. We'll be in twenty five um, next year. Um, but it's it's like uh, you know learning about the last mafia. This this booze business. I'll tell you that. And it's been such a the, the brand sweetens cove to that point. Like I've. Jonathan's given me a couple bottles. It's mm-hmm. good stuff, but it's it's the brand that y'all have built through this new partnership and the improvements that have been made to the golf course itself, which mm-hmm. started the whole thing. But I I'm fascinated with it. I've been down there once with you, and mm-hmm. it was one of the coolest days ever. I mean, it was a sloppy golf course, but it just how many different. It's ra- not. It was raining. It's yeah. not a sloppy golf course. It was raining that day. No. No, yes, that's, that's, that's what that's what I mean. But but like, how many different routings can you play out there at Sweetens as well? There's like 45 different holes on a nine-hole golf course. So they have like the original Sweetens Cove Illuminati who were out there way before our new ownership group. And we've certainly wanted to, uh, we've, we've been so precious about keeping the things that made Sweetens special in place, you know, while also trying to improve it and potentially even make it a, a, a profitable business uh, a, a, along the way. Two different flags on every hole every day. You know, people are just going to try to loop as much as possible. Um, we stopped selling tea times and went to like a day pass, so someone can get there as soon as they want and they can play till the sun goes down. Uh, the the routings that that the kind of original Sweetens Cove Illuminati, I don't understand all of them. You tee it off in the middle of the fairway on seven, you hit it across the property to, to, to God knows where, and so hundreds would be the answer uh, of which I understand about three of them. <laughs> but I think that's what's so cool and that's what golf misses a place like that. I mean, how many people in Chattanooga area go out and play Sweetens Cove and it's one of their first experiences in the game of golf and it really, it, 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 it brings them back time and time again. And did y'all build a putting course out there too? Yeah, so it's this massive, like the, the height differential between the bottom of the putting course and the top is it's something like 40 some odd feet. <sighs> Um, it's nuts, um, but it's great because with a nine-hole loop, there's gonna be a bit of a bottleneck with people going on and off. So we had to have something that was awesomely entertaining, you know. So someone's not pissed that they have to wait 45 minutes before they they make the circle. And uh, Rob Collins came in and just built this. Yeah, I love Rob Collins. I don't know that anyone has ever described him as subtle, um, and I'm a, I'm such a huge fan of his. And he came and just what was kind of this ditch of a parking lot of some sort he turned into this endlessly entertaining uh putting putting green we don't have a range we can't fit one we barely have nuts so 
you can't cut. You have to have something that's like a friendly handshake in the golf yeah. before you're hitting off that, that first tee. Have you been out to see his place, Landman, that he built out? I haven't. I'm going. I'm going to go this summer. And then he's doing Red Feather in Lubbock as well, yeah. which is apparently extremely wild. JJ Killeen, yeah, that, that place looks like it's going to be unbelievable. Brendan, I feel like I'm not giving you enough time no, here, no, no, but no, no. I want to. I want to kind of back it up just a hair because I think this is really interesting. Having three basically retired professional yeah. athletes, I know the last couple of years of my life have been really, kind mm -hmm. of excruciating, like not mental illness excruciating but like what am I going to mm -hmm. do next like I have and finally Golf Channel came around this podcast came around and the fulfillment I'm feeling but what was the transition from professional tennis to your new life right now what was that like for you yeah I, I mean we, we we've talked about it too I, I think it's intimidating for a lot of not even athletes but people who have done something for 30 years you know we're, we're, we're doing it at an earlier age because we started uh, a little bit early you, you practice golf every day from the time you're seven you practice it like it's a job, um, you know. So maybe you're not getting paid, but you you're acting like you have a job for uh, a serious moment in time. Um, I I, w I was pretty lucky, um, you know. I, I kind of started building the afterlife mid mid career um, with with some different business ventures. So I, I always feel guilty when I say this, and I feel like I should give a different response. Um, when I'm like, wow, do you miss it? I'm like, I, most days not much. Like I, I miss I miss. I get like chills the moments, and I get it, I get it now. But like the first day of Wimbledon, the first match when two guys or gals are walking out, like I know what that smells like, right? I know kind of this like hush, you know. Some some stadiums whisper, some murmur, some scream and yell at you. And so those little moments where I know what they're thinking and feeling, then I get like a little bit of a rush. But like most Tuesdays, I, I didn't I didn't struggle much. Were you a guy that when you were playing, you absolutely loved tennis? Like tennis was it, be all, end all? Uh, I, most of the time. I yeah. mean, listen, we, you know, like the, the good times are the best and everything's flowing. And, you know, when you're thinking about, you know, a shot and not a swing, like those are the best of times, right? Like there are little pockets in a career where you go, okay, I might lose, but I'm not going to play badly. I know I have it in there right now. Those are fun. You know, when you're struggling and fighting and clawing and hurting, like those practice days suck a lot of the times, but I always had an appreciation for it. I always had perspective on, listen, like I, I lost an excruciating, uh, you know, lost the Wimbledon finals three times. The last time was, was brutal, but at the end of it, like the crowd is chanting my name and I didn't win. That was the 09 final. Yeah, and so right. it's, it's perspective matters, sure. right? So I always had, a, I think, a healthy sense of perspective, even if I was just pissed. Now, I wasn't easy, I was pretty emotional. Like practice courts, I, I had to like, the, the, biggest, the biggest point of jealousy I ever had with, with Roger Federer was, I had, to I had to like win every practice set. Otherwise I felt like I wasn't prepared. Like I had to die for it, I had to like, it was, and that's probably why I retired at 30. Because right. I, just the mental toll that I kind of put on myself. Whereas I would look over and I'd be walking in from some practice where I went two and a half hours and you know, literally had to have a result in practice, which is insane. Uh, walk by him and he's like relaxed, you know, hitting balls around, losing to some guy 6-2. And I had the jealousy of him knowing that on Monday start of a major, he could lose to, you know, he, he could lose to some guy 200 in the world in practice set on Saturday. And it did not affect his mindset that he knew it was going to be there when he needed it on, on Monday. And that drove me nuts. <laughs> 
Absolutely nuts. And did you, like, I, I know you've gotten to become a really good golfer. Last time I looked, you're like a two and a half index. That's true. Well, yeah. I'm mean, good enough to know I'm not good. Is that, is that a vanity handicap? No, it's that... not. It's not a vanity handicap. <laughs> it's just, I'm a guy who makes a lot of pars and no birdies. I'm the worst partner ever. <laughs> did you, but did you take your work ethic work from tennis to your golf game? I don't practice. Like, I don't, I, I don't know. But when did you start playing the game? I play, so I started my last year on tour, so maybe 2011. Um, but it was kind of only when I was home. And then I retired, and for 18 months after I retired, I, I think I played golf five days a week. I would be out of the, out, out my door at 6.45 in the morning. I'd be first on, and I would, I would, I would just be going. So I, I, that was kind of my, my, my crash course. But I, I, a lot of people go to the range and like endlessly hit balls. I like playing. I just right. like having fun. I like being with... And I also fear if I took it too seriously, like I know what my, I'm aware of lots of my personality flaws. Uh, they would probably manifest if I took it too seriously. Was it a competitive outlet for you at all? Not really. I mean, I like playing the fun games, but I'm not, there's no chance I lose to someone in golf and it's going to ruin my day. Right. Like I just, they're just, there's not a, there's not a set of consequences that are worth anything in, in golf. So I'd like to think I'm different uh, from general golf orbit because I, I mean listen I, I suck what does it matter I'm not playing for paychecks anymore right? yeah, but to get to start so you started playing golf when you were 29 years old and to get down to a low single digit handicap that's I mean that's you're obviously an elite level athlete but that's that's you're being very humble with that response there's people who've played golf their entire life and can never become a single digit so I, I think I that, think that's mostly just because I'm way more athletic than they are <laughs> Did you did you pick it up quickly? I mean, I know you send it now, but were you mauling the ball at 29, 30 years? No, old? I couldn't hit a driver. Like I, I was like I, I could it's get like, a, like yeah, I could so get about it. <laughs> yeah, right, unfortunately, I'm sure it's all right. No, I, I don't know. I, like I, I could I could clip an iron. I could hit it pretty. You know, no, but it's it's improved over time. Like 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 anything. Um, but I did, I I got good quickly. Also, I had I played a lifetime of golf for most people in eighteen months. That matters. Do you ever take any formal lessons, or you just taught yourself how to? No, I should. Um, not really. I wasn't real good at taking a lot of technical instruction in tennis. Yeah. So it was like, I, I if someone was like, your arms need to be at a certain angle, and then I'd have a coach come in and say, soften your elbows. I was like, oh, soften your elbows makes sense. Where the racket height is, and where I'm trying yeah. to, like, I, that never really made sense. It was more of a feeling. So I can only assume that I'd be even worse at that. Right. Uh, so you've never had a lesson golf. at all? No, I haven't had Man, a lesson. Man, you got a good pro over there at Charlotte Country Club, yeah. Eric Williams. I know. I, but I also like. This is the way my mind works. Like I could go for an hour with him, or I, or I could go. I need to become more obsessed with becoming like a scratch golfer, and I just I don't really care that much. Do, do, you, <laughs> yeah. do you play competitively? Do you play the club championships at the clubs your members at? Mm -hmm. Remember, you play some member guests and stuff. I'll play some member guests, but that's just more fun. Um, maybe I, it's, I've kind of over the last year started thinking maybe I should try to play a club championship here and there, but I haven't to this point. Like I just it, you just recently withdrew from a tournament down at a hoopy match club for a pickleball with, tournament. With, <laughs> yeah, uh, yes, that's what my life is now. It's pickleball. Um, yeah, uh, we had a member member. I withdrew late on our friend Drew Holcomb. Um, so he was. I, I think he was less than pleased, but he was real classy about it, Johnson. Um, <laughs> But we played, do you remember, so you, we all remember the match uh, with Tiger and Phil in Vegas at Shadow Creek. Yeah. So um, David Levy, who was kind of the architect of that, uh, used to run Turner, uh, has a new company uh, called Horizon. And so his first, <laughs> his brainchild of his first event was, I'm going to take this sport that, that's growth rate is, is, is very high on the participatory side, but hasn't really translated to TV. I'm going to take four, you know, has been tennis players and throw them out there live on ESPN 
uh, to play pickleball. And so we, the mo like from signing the contract to, to doing it, oh, and we're playing for a million dollars. Signing the contract uh, to actually on TV live playing a sport that none of us had ever played before was like three months. Y'all look pretty good out there. I mean, you and Agassi were dying. There was some serious sweat factor going on. I look like Brendan and I playing tennis on a hot summer day. <laughs> it's, uh, I'm disgusting with that. Um, but it, it was like, it was a 10 out of 10 fun. Uh, I didn't realize I missed that like crowd feedback until I was out there. I was like, this is amazing. It was a great excuse to do something fun. And my favorite part about it was like, Andre was my idol. Like just, I made all the bad wardrobe decisions right along with him. A lot of neon, a lot of, you know, grew a mullet, um, and to have like the way he, like how analytical he is about everything was so much fun. Cause I'm getting like text feedbacks. He's breaking down this game that like, is like a barbecue game, you know, but every, it basically gave me excuse to uh, pretend like I'm really close friends with Andre for three months, which was fun. Did y'all ever play matches against each other? Yeah, so I played, I lost to him. First match I ever won on tour was in 2000. Beat a guy ranked like 40 in the world. A big tournament in Miami. Um, equivalent to like a WGC event. And I was 17. Lost to him at night. You know, it was 12,000 people. Second round, played him. But like I couldn't even like breathe. He came up, you know, five minutes before the match. Because like an empty locker room at night matches. Comes up, he goes, I'm Andre. I'm like, last name? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh. Like, I, I almost felt like, you know, it was like a, the South Park character who whenever Wendy comes up and talks to him, he just vomits on her. <laughs> That's kind of what I felt like, but got tuned up by him. I remember lost to him that night and then had to go, my mom made me go to school the next morning. So I went from like playing in front of like 12,000 that night to like math class at like 9 a.m. And that's when I realized I really needed to be good at tennis so I didn't have to do math anymore. <laughs> but lo I lost to him a lot. Uh, beat him once. All right, back to some more tennis here. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> Um, all right, obviously we grew up playing in the Tiger Woods era. Mm. You grew up playing with three Tiger Woods. Yeah, yeah. Probably the three greatest mm -hmm. of all times. Is there any part of you that thinks, man, that, that was a privilege, or you're like, shit, if it wasn't for these clowns, I could have double-digit slams? Both. Both. I don't think I would have double-digit slams. I, I'm pretty sure I would have won Wimbledon a couple times, maybe. Sure. Um, I probably, I lost, I you know, probably would have had maybe an Aussie Open, maybe, an, maybe another uh, US Open. The only regret I have, I, like I would have loved to have won two more points at Wimbledon. You know, right. I was within two points, like probably like five or six times. Um, if I had that, I'd, I don't care about five, six. You know, I had a cup of coffee at number one. That's a fun thing to be able to say. Um, but no, I mean, I, 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 during my Hall of Fame speech, it's like, how do you approach that? It's like a weird thing, and. It was, I tried to approach it always through the lens of like, I am a tennis fan first and foremost. Right. So it's like, how many tennis fans get to see, get to guard Jordan, get to pitch to Babe Ruth, get to see, you know, Picasso make something. And that's, that's kind of what I felt. And all the while, like I grew up with, you know, grew up watching Serena Williams train to be a, a champion also. So I had a kind of uh, a front row seat to, to that as well. So would I have loved to have won Wimbledon? Absolutely. Sure. Uh, am I bitter about any part of it? Just a little. <laughs> Just a little, but it's 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 absolutely insane what these three have done. Um, Novak, I, he'll end up being the, the best by any statistical metric. Right. Anyone who argues against that uh, just likes someone else more. Yeah. Um, but it, it's crazy the way that they've changed the narrative around how we 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 value slams. This kid Alcaraz comes out. He's in like the semis of the U.S. Open last year. And you're having conversations with tennis people, right? It'd be like you guys being in the golf locker room, and they're going, 
is, is he going to win 10 slams? I'm like, okay. So, McEnroe's won seven. Becker and Edberg have won six. Agassi has won eight. Now the conversation starts at 10. We're guilty of that in golf, Because too. of these three guys. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, that's, that's, that's insane. I'm already handing out Rom eight majors after his performance on Sunday. Like, I mean, I think I think media is so guilty of that. Rory, when he won his fourth, who would have thought? Yeah. Nine years later, he'd still be stuck at four. And, we, we, and you're making a lot of assumptions, right? You're making right. a lot of like, it can go squirrely at any time. You know, it, is someone gonna like the fact that these guys have all been able to play twenty some odd years, right? Straight. And listen, Roth is paying the bill for that, and he's going to pay the bill for that for his life because he's. He moves differently than Roger. It was smoother. You know, Novak looks the. I mean, he looks like he's 22 still. Like he's, he's stretched like he's six getting hours like a day. Or Gumby. Something. He, he was. Yeah. yeah, it's insane. Yeah. Um, but it's like they're just. It's going to be a weird uh, post mortem on their careers, and what our expectations are. And someone's going to have three slams, and we're going to be like, nah. <laughs> you suck. I'm like, shut up, everyone. There's everyone's so good, but these three. I mean, it's just insane that they're all playing at the same time crazy and also we don't talk about enough if you subtract one of them we're looking at guys with 35 slams right like they're eating each other's lunch the whole time too how many sampers win 18 14 14 okay 14 never won the French and the other thing is the all these guys have won each slam like Nadal and Djokovic there were only two guys that had ever won all the slams before this generation Andre had won all the slams and Laver had won all the slams Nadal and Djokovic have won them all at least twice Roger only get one French. One French Open. I mean, it was like, and it was the year that Rafa got knocked out. Like, it was upset of the, the decade. But it's, it's, what they've done is just insane. It's crazy. Keep firing. Um, <laughs> Trash talking. Yeah. Is there any of it in tennis? There is. There is. It's... it's it's kind of like when needed. It, you know, you see a lot of trash talk in the NBA. It's like when a team's like up 20. There's no chance I was ever going to like throw a variable in to piss someone off if I was up 20. Right? It, more, it was more along the lines of like if someone takes, you're in a three out of five set match, you know, someone takes the first set, you know, maybe there's maybe they're 70 in the world. And I have a ton of respect for that. But in that moment, I'm going to try to make them think a little. Yeah. I was like, you, you, you did it for an hour. Can you do it for five hours? Like, but it's always like under your towel. As you're walking. Yeah. As you're walking. Yeah. Or like, I, I'll say like you're 80 in the world and I have three hours to figure out why. <laughs> you know, so it was, it, was, it was kind of a little bit more subtle. Um, Is there some done through the umpire as well? Like this guy, that, whatever. Oh, you... I mean, listen, it's all on the table, yeah. right? I mean, it's, you wouldn't do it to, I, I think there probably had to be a, a, an element of just not liking the person personally. Right. Like I don't know that I would ever go to like a, a a dear friend and sacrifice like a you know a long friendship for a quip. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean it, it exists. It's it's tough to it's a little bit tougher because you know you, you you normally it's like the crowd noise comes up in any other sport and that's when you can kind of get it in because you you know you can't yell across the court. <laughs> right. You suck. <laughs> Doesn't really work that way, but it's 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 there a little bit. I've always found it interesting, you know, being a professional golfer, having a caddy there. It's an mm. individual sport, but you've always got a shoulder to lean on, a, a, a voice to, to be in your head. And, like, when you're out there playing tennis, you are on an absolute island, mm -hmm. right? And so I, 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 junior golf is a little bit that way. But the only thing golf-wise that can compare it to is match play, where you're not really chatting with the guy you're playing against. Like, you see all these tennis players yelling at their box and stuff. How, mm -hmm. how did you handle the mental strength it took to play a, fi a five-set match when you didn't really have anybody to speak to? It's, it's weird. I, I, I don't know that... It, 
at the time it was kind of normal, right? So, and then after tennis and uh, uh, one of my best friends, Marty Fish, has, has opened up against uh, some of his mental uh, anxiety challenges. And, you know, as Osaka's talked out loud about it and as it's become okay to kind of talk about, you know, it, it's a weird existence. You're in a hotel room alone for 45 weeks a year. You're four hours into a match where, you know, you feel like at any moment your entire body could cramp, right? But then you're also trying to focus. So, it was, it was this mental gymnastics uh, in a very extreme exposed conditions that I thought was just like, you're supposed to be tough enough to do this. And kind of in the rear view, I'm going, well, that's actually psychotic. I mean, you'd walk out in Australia sometimes and like the mental thing started. <laughs> so on center court there, they, they, it used to be just a rubber surface, like a, like, what do they call it? Rebound ace. It was a rubber surface. And so you would walk out there on a hot day and the, the on-court temps were probably 140 knowing that you probably, you could have, you know, you, you prepare every match like you could be out there six hours. Sometimes it's an hour and a half, you know, sometimes it's more. But to, to enter Rod Laird Arena, you kind of walk down three steps, so you're like almost eye level with the court. And you can kind of smell that, that, that thing where it's like burning, burning tires. Rubber. But also you look out and it, like when you're in the desert and it's really hot and you see those little like water kind of yeah. mirage situations, you could see that on the court. And so right then it's like, man, this, <laughs> this, this sucks. This sucks. But like no a, wind movement. But Agassi, I walked in one time. It was like really, really smart, intelligent people are able to take big concepts and like simplify them into like a sentence, right? So I come in. I, I think I'd won like a five setter. I'm just. I mean, you lay down. You just. You don't move for an hour. You're just dead. You know, trying to get something into your body. I said, man, kid, this heat is just absurd. He goes, you're an asshole. I said, possibly. Why specifically now? <laughs> And he goes, he goes, you're in a job where you just have to be more comfortable than one person a day. Shut up. Yeah, I'm like, it's like, it's like stop making brilliant. sense. Stop it's making brilliant. sense. Yeah, I'm yeah. like, he's like, you, everyone else is playing against the field. I mean, golf, you play against the field yep. every day. He goes, you have to be more comfortable than one person. He goes, the person you just played was, from, he's been training in Slovakia in December. He goes, shut up. <laughs> That's incredible. Oh, okay, I'll just be over here in my own shame. You ready to play a little hammer or you got any more? No, I'm ready to play some hammer. All right, it's our, it's our little finishing segment here. Let's play some hammer. You ever play hammer on the golf course? I do. I, I normally just start the conversation with just let me know what I owe at the end. <laughs> you want to start us off? Go for it. Uh, I'm going to be pretty I'm going to be pretty basic here, but uh, you know, list me your top three favorite courses and favorite architects. Uh... My three favorite courses, um, Pine Valley, Cypress is probably the best day of golf because you all don't get stressed about hitting it all ways. You go to a place like Pine Valley, that's so hard. You start hitting it sideways, like panic sets in early, and I don't think Cypress quite has that, that panic mechanism. Um, third, I, I love uh, a hoopie's, like, the, like a home is like, a, you know, it's, 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 it's phenomenal. Um, Probably those, probably those three. Augusta is amazing. I mean, if you get a great day at Augusta, I, mean, I don't know that it gets much better than that. I, I hate having only three. I know. I'm such a fan of golf. Uh, uh, anything McKenzie, like bunkering, you go to like Pasatiempo, and it's just like the Western intercollegiate right it's now. It's just crazy. It yeah. just looks so cool. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a sucker for, for his style uh, bunkering. And it's very different than, than what Augusta looks like, too. By the Completely. Way. Yeah. All right, I got a bet for you. <laughs> Right. We play a set of tennis, mm -hmm. 
you beat me six love, you get six shots on the golf course. Mm -hmm. You have to start every game down 30 love. Mm -hmm. You only get one serve. Mm -hmm. We take it to the golf course. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, would, I wouldn't do anything that would only get me six shots against you on the golf course because we could skip the tennis and I would still get six shots from you on the golf course. <laughs> so it basically just seems like a bunch of wasted time, really. That's what, that's what I said. <laughs> I was, and the thing is, you're going to get six now, from what, me. What, you're going to smoke him on the course and you're going to beat him Now, what, six the, what the bet is, is we basically figure out what we would start at, which is probably five or six. And then I have the ability to earn more on the tennis bet. Like I'm not gonna start. I'm not. I'm not gonna start at a place where my upside is what is. My golf game is a shambles. Yeah, he's he's probably a three handicap. Your yeah. your short game is still pretty tidy though. Stop it, you guys. I'm not gonna be average. Yeah, the, the, the negotiation's not going. I, well. I just want to see him serve it to you one time. That's all. That, uh, There's more chance of me returning one of your drives than me returning <laughs> one of his. <laughs> Uh, just imagine some of the catcher's mitt just yeah, like, yes. uh, out yeah. in the fairway. Can't can't hit it can't hit it through a cardboard box from five feet away. Is that what you're saying? Pretty Meanwhile, much. you're about thirty yards shorter. It's not about me. Um, all right. Uh, I heard a funny story about the name of your dog. Yeah, and it is. It's Bob Costas. Yeah, tell me about tell me about yeah. that. Well, one, you have to give dogs a first and last name. All right, because it's funnier, um, and. I still get a kick out of like the vet will call, and they'll say, <laughs> the vet will call, and they're, they're like Bob's ready. Bob, Bob. It's like well, Bob Costas is ready to be picked up. So I have this vision of someone just picking up Bob Costas, and it's been it's been a, it's been something that's brought me moments of joy for 11 years. What kind of dog? It's an English bulldog. Nice. So it's like Bob Costas, and they look at you like they look. You know, English bulldogs are the sweetest dogs ever, but they always look very confused. Right, and so he's like Bob Costas. Hmm? <laughs> Do you call him Bob Costas full name every time you speak to him? Yeah, so maybe sometimes Robert Costas. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it was, it was fun. like literally this morning, uh, my daughter and I were at Starbucks, and she she asked me like dead seriously, like, why isn't it Bob Roddick? I'm like, because picking up Bob Costas is funnier. <laughs> <laughs> you had an English bulldog. Oh man, they're the best. best. I absolutely love that yeah. dog. I bawled like a baby when we put yeah. him down. It was. Yeah, they are the best. Yeah. All right. How disappointed were you that you didn't get an Oscars nod for uh, Just Go? <laughs> Seriously. Uh, okay, so uh, wasn't really disappointed. Yeah, didn't, okay. re didn't right. really have my. So the, the truth is that I actually had two lines that apparently I couldn't deliver two lines, so those didn't end up uh, on screen. Um, there was this big gold chain that said, I love Justin. At the time, it was like Timberlake Bieber. That wasn't actually on me when I was doing the scene. It was done in, in post. And so uh, when my wife first went to the lot to, to watch the movie and before it was put out, uh, I went with her. And so we're, we're going in and we see Sandler before we go watch the movie. Uh, and he's like, oh, great. And he's like the nicest human of all time. Uh, so he says, enjoy it. Let me know what you think. So afterwards, we're, we're, we're driving by in carts. <laughs> And he goes, nice necklace, you. <laughs> I was like, and that was it. And then we come on and I get no lines and I have a dumb necklace. <laughs> well, cheers. Any more? Andy, thank you for your time. Yeah. This has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I can't wait to get on the golf course at some point soon. 
I don't think the tennis court's happening. I think you could beat Brendan with your bare hand on the tennis court, but uh, Pick, thank you. Pickleball, that's what all, it's, it's, it's all the rage. Yeah, I'll yeah. play some pickleball. Yeah, let's do it. We'll get Ishii out there. Yeah. No, screw Ishii. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, yeah. Sure, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys.